Happy Sabbath everyone! We're so excited to have you, your friends and your families joining with us for our service today. Uh, in case I haven't had the chance to meet you yet or you're worshipping with us for the very first time, my name is Josie and I'm one of the deacons here at Castle Hill Church. Uh, but whether you're new or are a returning member, I just want to extend a really warm welcome on this really cold day to everyone who's listening. Um, it's no secret that I would much rather be speaking to you all in person right now rather than through a TV or a laptop or a phone or a tablet, but I think we can all agree that it has been an absolute blessing to be able to still keep the Sabbath each week together and praise our Heavenly Father in a creative way that's been able to keep us all as safe and as healthy as possible in these incredibly stressful and turbulent times. Um, every day this week has been nothing short of chaotic. With the resurgence of the virus in Victoria and now certain parts of New South Wales and resultant border closure and further restrictions on the movement of people, not to mention the tensions between our Australian government and the CCP over Hong Kong. But as Christians, right, these headlines that we've been reading, they're not necessarily unexpected in that we know that in Matthew chapter 24 verses 7 and 8 that nation will rise against nation and kingdom will rise against kingdom, that there will be earthquakes and famine in various places and all these things are the beginning of birth pains. Which is scary, right, but is also a reminder that Jesus is coming again soon. In the little time that I have this morning, I wanted to share with you a quick message that has really inspired and uplifted me this week. And it's twofold. First, God is not immune to our personal circumstances, our griefs, our anxieties, our frustrations that we allow in his feet in prayer. Nor is he blind to the fact that we're deliberately choosing to draw closer to him the harder or more overwhelming that life may feel. Um, in 2 Chronicles chapters 14 and 15, we learn that God gave King Asa, I'm pleased Pablo and Nick forgive me for my pronunciation there, he was the third king of Judah, um, God gave him rest on every side because in the face of extreme adversity, or in his case, a massive army, um, he drew closer to God. Um, unfortunately, if you keep reading in chapter 16, um, it the story makes a turn for the worse and uh, our king tends or does something of a 180 and rather than calling out on God's name he attempts to negotiate almost his way out of a territorial dispute with the then king of Israel um, and it's an abysmal failure. Um, obviously you know it's not the most positive end to a story but there's a really beautiful promise from God that is contained in chapter 16 and it's hidden um, in the first part of chapter 16 verse 9 and it reads for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose hearts are blameless towards him so we serve a God who is all-knowing and all-powerful, yet he draws close to us, so close that his voice is like a whisper, filling us with a spiritual peace when we call on his name and wholeheartedly put our faith in him. Second, 
God's faithfulness is consistent. Like it says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. While there may be times where we're overcome with fear or doubt, if you look closely at scripture or even your own life, everyone and anyone will be able to see God's thread or a trace or a hint of God's faithfulness in our own lives. So don't give up on God because he loves you. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. We need to break this habit of resorting first to trying to fix things ourselves rather than instead fixing our eyes on God and asking him for the wisdom and the strength to get through whatever we're facing. Because with him by our sides, regardless of how dark or how hopeless this world may seem at times, we have the beautiful, blessed assurance that he has not forsaken us, that he has not forgotten us, um, that he cries when we do, and perhaps even more remarkably, that he is coming again soon. I think you know the story. I'm going to throw out a few clues, and you shout out the, the story when you recognize it. A tree. A dinner. A short man. Salvation. Did you guess it? Zacchaeus. Most of us even know the song, right? Not only is this story very familiar, but I'm guessing you've heard at least one sermon on it before. It's an excellent story with visual elements, drama, and dramatic twists. And here's how the story goes in a children's book that I found lying around. Zacchaeus was a tax collector in the city of Jericho, and he had cheated many people out of their money. He was short, a wee little man. So he climbed up a tree to see Jesus. Jesus asked him to come down from the tree. Zacchaeus obeyed. Then he gave half of everything he owned to the poor. He was sorry for his sins, and Jesus forgave him. Does that sound about right? We normally think of the story of Zacchaeus as being about him repenting from his personal sins of dishonesty and thus salvation comes to his house. But why might we be missing some of what's happening in the story? Leaving us with a picture that shrinks salvation. Are there other things going wrong in this story that people might need saving from? What would it mean for salvation to come to our house? Let's have a look at the story again. It's at the start of Luke 19. Luke 19, verses 1 to 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, 
for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So, is Zacchaeus the sneaky cheater we've so often been told he was? Did he have ill-gotten riches to repay? The first problem I had with this story when I was a lot younger was a mathematical problem with the fourfold repayment. You see, if Zacchaeus really had got all his money from dishonest dealings, then repaying it fourfold would be impossible. He would run out of money before he'd repaid the last people. I'm going to explore a different way of reading the story of Zacchaeus that calls us to consider a larger picture of salvation. When I first saw the story this way, I thought I'd come up with a new idea. But of course, I was wrong. Bible scholars, some Bible scholars, have held this interpretation for centuries. So let's turn back and look at the text and look at some evidence. There are some key words that we should unpack a bit. In verse 6, Zacchaeus receives Jesus joyfully. This strikes me as a strange reaction for a dishonest cheat coming face to face with an all-knowing God. There is no shame or confusion or embarrassment. Zacchaeus does not receive Jesus apologetically or reluctantly or fearfully. He receives him joyfully. And in verse 8, Zacchaeus stood to speak to Jesus. This verb feels like an unnecessary detail, but Bible writers are very efficient with words. Details are rarely unnecessary. Throughout the Bible, when people are repentant, their posture is down on their knees or even prostrate on the ground. Elsewhere in Luke's Gospel, we see examples that contrast with Zacchaeus. In Luke 5 verse 8, when Simon Peter saw the amazing catch of fish after a night of toiling without a bite, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. In Luke 5, verse 12, a leper saw Jesus and fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And this is common across a whole lot of cultures in the Bible times. In Jonah 3 verse 6, for example, the word of Jonah reaches the king of Nineveh that the city has done evil in the eyes of the Lord. The king arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. This is the posture of repentance. But Zacchaeus stood. 
And notice what he stands in response to. The crowd are grumbling that Jesus has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. It seems to me that Zacchaeus is standing with the frustration of being falsely accused. Also in verse 8, there's an if in Zacchaeus's declaration. If he overcharges anyone, he makes it up. This conditional statement makes it seem less of an apology and more of a protestation of innocence. Now, while the conditional if is very clear, there is a bit of ambiguity here in the rest of Zacchaeus's speech. Have a look carefully at verse 8 of Luke 19. If you're reading the New International Version or the New American Standard Bible or the New Living Translation, for example, you will notice that it says, Zacchaeus will give half of his goods to the poor and will repay anything that he has taken fraudulently. That future tense certainly makes it seem as though this is a new action for Zacchaeus in response to his meeting Jesus. But if you're looking at an English Standard Version or a King James Version or a Revised Standard Version, a New King James Version or even the Message, then you might disagree. These are some of the translations and paraphrases that render Zacchaeus' statement in the present tense. I'm reading the Bible passages today from the ESV, the English Standard Version, but the message has Zacchaeus say, Master, I give away half my income to the poor, and if I'm caught cheating, I pay four times the damages. These verbs, give and repay, were in fact written in the present tense, like this in Greek. But that still leaves interpretive room. Is Zacchaeus making a pronouncement about what he will do right now in repentance? Or is Zacchaeus describing an established pattern of behaviour? There are biblical scholars who hold each of these interpretations. To me, today, given the other details that we're considering, it makes the most sense to read this as Zacchaeus describing how he already acts with his finances. Now, the fourfold repayment that Zacchaeus describes in verse 8 might have been a mathematical curiosity for me when I was younger, but it is much more than that. In Exodus 22, when God is giving laws to the Israelites, a fair amount of detail is included about repayment or restitution for various offences. In Exodus 22, which of course is only a few verses after the Ten Commandments, and verse 1, it says, If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in, and in fact it goes on there for many verses, giving more detail, more technical detail about how to repay for various kinds of theft and vandalism and arson. And in verse 7 it says, If a man gives his neighbour money or goods to keep safe, and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. 
and then in verse 9, a kind of summary. For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox, for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, or for any kind of lost thing, of which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbour. There are some understandable reasons here why the repayment might be higher for oxen, which can't reproduce, than it is for sheep, which can have offspring. It's interesting that for money, the required repayment is double. And we know that this concept continued in ancient Israel. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 to 6, the prophet Nathan condemns David with a story about a rich man with many sheep who kills his neighbor's only lamb in order to feed it as a meal to a guest. We read in 2 Samuel 12, verses 5 and 6, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. In fact, in the writings of the rabbis, fourfold restitution is mentioned occasionally, but it is not as common as twofold repayment, matching the summary back there in Exodus 22. It seems that Zacchaeus is fastidious about observing and perhaps exceeding the Mosaic law. And remember, he's a Roman tax collector. I was fascinated to learn that a handful of inscriptions from the middle of the first century prescribe a fourfold repayment in Roman law. A number of commentators point out that Zacchaeus claims to provide restitution in the same proportion as he would have been liable to under Roman law if he had been brought into court. This detail of the fourfold repayment seems to speak of Zacchaeus's diligent honesty under the law, both religious and civic, much more than it speaks of an extravagant apology. And finally, one of the most interesting clues has been staring us in the face all along. The name Zacchaeus means pure or innocent. So there's a number of reasons to think that Zacchaeus might not have been the fraudulent mobster that we've always understood. And yet, the day Jesus ate at his house, he was able to proclaim, today salvation has come to this house. What might salvation mean here if Zacchaeus was innocent? Well, let's have a look at how this story fits into the Gospel of Luke. Way back in chapter 3, Luke records crowds coming from all around the region of the Jordan to hear John the Baptist. That's where Jericho is. And tax collectors are specifically mentioned as being among the crowds that come to listen. Luke 3, verses 10 to 14 says, And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, 
Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Are you hearing this? If you've got abundance, two tunics, give half to the poor. Don't collect dishonest top-ups above the authorised tax. Don't extort money by threats. As a chief tax collector in the city of Jericho, I can easily imagine that Zacchaeus was there among the crowds, listening to John the Baptist. Collecting the tax itself is not the problem for John the Baptist, and Luke seems particularly interested in this theme. It is in Luke's Gospel that the story of asking about taxes is used to try and trick Jesus. In Luke 20, verses 21 to 25, some spies sent by the chief priests and scribes ask Jesus, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Jesus, like his cousin John, refuses to concede that paying tax to the Romans in and of itself is wrong. And in Luke's Gospel, the chief priests and scribes bring Jesus before Pilate, in Luke 23, verse 2, with the accusation, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. That's a better description of their own attitudes towards Roman taxation. So tax collecting in itself is not a sin in the Gospel of Luke. But it is very obviously an unpopular activity among the Jews, who strongly resent being under Roman rule. In Luke 5, verses 27 to 32, Jesus calls a tax collector named Levi as one of his disciples. From verse 29, And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them, and the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? The religious community of Jesus' day had clearly defined the boundaries between who was in and who was out. And as we approach the story of Zacchaeus, Jesus has repeatedly made it clear that he does not find those boundaries helpful. He has healed a withered hand on the Sabbath. He has healed a centurion's servant and commended a sinful woman for anointing his feet with perfume. He has disregarded the ceremonial laws of cleanliness and has healed a demon-possessed man, a bleeding woman and ten lepers. He has told parables of the Good Samaritan, a great banquet, and the rich man and Lazarus. 
stories which upend conventional ideas about access to God and his blessings. And then, in Luke 18, a chapter before the story of Zacchaeus, Jesus provokes with a story about a tax collector being more righteous than a Pharisee. Somehow, despite all of this, the disciples obviously found it difficult to comprehend this revolutionary message of inclusion. In Luke 18, verses 15 to 17, they turn away the children. But Jesus called to them, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them. Jesus always sides with those on the margins, excluded from real society, even when they're just infants. Immediately after Jesus says that whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it, a ruler comes asking how to inherit eternal life. In Luke 18, verses 19 to 21, this ruler claims to be a law-abiding and commandment-keeping citizen. But he's been an accomplice to the child exclusion just verses before. And Jesus gives him a wake-up call about restoring community. By suggesting this rich man should give to the poor, I think Jesus is asking him to consider whether he's ever sided with the marginalized or gone in their defense. But when he heard these things, he became very sad. And then in 30, verse 35 of Luke 18, Jesus draws near to Jericho. This is the direct lead-up to his encounter with Zacchaeus. And a blind beggar was sitting beside the road. He began to cry out for Jesus to have mercy on him. But yet again, the crowds who were following Jesus sidelined the marginalized. They rebuked the beggar and told him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, and Jesus stopped and healed him. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Then Jesus enters Jericho. Is it any wonder that Zacchaeus ran to climb a tree? The children have been rebuked. The blind outsider has been rebuked. Zacchaeus is a tax collector, and he's short. And he knows from harsh experience that he is very much an outsider. He's excluded from this community. And is it any wonder that he was seeking to see Jesus? This same Jesus has defended the outcasts, healed the rejects, defended the innocent, and proclaimed radical inclusion. And yet again, Jesus takes the opportunity to bust open the boundaries to community. He goes in to eat and stay with Zacchaeus, because that's one of the best ways to heal isolation. But when Jesus healed the blind man outside the city, the crowds gave praise to God. Now that Jesus heals an ostracized man inside the city, the crowds grumble. And could it be that right then, when Zacchaeus stands before Jesus to make his case, 
It's the first time that the community has actually stopped to hear Zacchaeus. Could it be the first time they've ever considered trying to understand him beyond the walls of their own prejudice? And Jesus says, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. Salvation has come to the house, the community. Even from the words alone, this is a bigger picture than an individual repenting from their sins. Since he also is a son of Abraham, Zacchaeus is a person too. He's just as much a member of the community as the man at the gates who has just had his sight restored. The sycamore tree was a cultural symbol of regeneration because anywhere its branches would be buried by the sand, they would sprout new roots. Zacchaeus climbs into a tree of regeneration and has restoration to the community. Today, salvation has come to this house. For Jesus, restoring outsiders to community is part of what salvation means. Is there a house where salvation needs to come today? So what does it look like when followers of Jesus do get his radical message of restoration and inclusion? Well, the book of Luke as a sequel, and we know it in the New Testament as the book of Acts. In Acts, we read of the followers of Jesus building a new way of living after being empowered by his teachings and resurrection. They build a new kind of community which came to be known as church. And in Acts 8, there's another quite familiar story. Acts 8, verses 26 to 39. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, 
See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. Don't you think that's a weird way to put it? What prevents me from being baptized? I think it would be more natural to ask, can I be baptized or will you please baptize me? Asking what prevents this baptism sounds like you're expecting or fearing a negative answer. Because, of course, there is an obstacle here. Remember, the Ethiopian has been reading the Hebrew Scriptures. After visiting Jerusalem, he had to be familiar with Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, which says, No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. The Ethiopian is a eunuch. He had travelled to Jerusalem to worship and was now returning. Given what the religious crowds have done to the children, the women, the beggars, and the tax collectors, during the ministry of Jesus recorded in Luke, I think we can guess how the Ethiopian was treated in Jerusalem. He was outside the community boundaries and was excluded. He would have been cut off from the worship that he travelled there to experience. But we know he was reading from Isaiah. Perhaps he'd also encountered Isaiah 56, verses 3 to 5. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me, and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name, better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. Maybe it was these verses in Isaiah that made him want to visit Jerusalem. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name. I will give an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And in the desert, on the way back home, this Ethiopian meets a disciple of the Jesus who restored outcasts to community. When asked about obstacles preventing his baptism, Philip doesn't speak any answer. He clearly knows the Scriptures. He's just given a Bible study. But he gets in the water and he baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch. Today, salvation has come to this house. Do you know of any houses where salvation needs to come today? Have you ever found yourself excluded from your community, your family, your church? Have you ever been forced to climb a tree to see Jesus? Perhaps you're feeling distant and cut off because of the way the world has changed due to COVID-19. Jesus is calling you down from that tree. 
He wants to give you a platform to reconcile and reconnect with your community. Jesus wants to stay at your house and bring to your house his salvation. Perhaps you're on the inside, an upstanding member of the crowd that follows Jesus. Have you ever seen someone excluded because they had the wrong friends? the wrong alliances, the wrong team, the wrong volume, the wrong ideas? What if they just don't conform to the picture of what is expected as normal? And if you've seen this kind of exclusion, how have you responded? Maybe We've even been the person in the crowd rebuking the outcast to stay silent. Maybe we've accidentally shrunk salvation to apply only to our destiny after death. And we've forgotten to extend Jesus' loving embrace of restoration right here today. Jesus still calls us to enter his kingdom, to join his mission and to follow his spirit. And it is just possible, here at the most loving church in Australia, that you have experienced the kind of inclusive community that sides with outsiders and restores the rejected. If you've been blessed by this part of salvation coming to our house, then I hope you're fired up to pass it on. Today, salvation has come to this house. Jesus has called for his followers to be agents of reconciliation, to be those that practice radical inclusion, is just as important and powerful today as it was in the time of Zacchaeus. We still need salvation in all its senses to come to our house today. Join me in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for sending us Jesus to teach us your ways of restoration and love and community. Remind us today to be agents of your community and we come before you grateful that you bring to our house today your salvation in all its senses. May we be in tune with your mission and part of your kingdom. We ask in your name. Amen.